Section 23 of The Mystery of the Ocean Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick Wallace. The Mystery of the Ocean Star by W. Clark Russell. Section 23 Spanish Armada. A commemorative paper, Daily Telegraph, June 1888. As the curtain of memory rises upon the most majestic, if not the most glorious, of the conflicts in all maritime history, the very first scene disclosed is hardly less noteworthy than the most impressive of the features of the mighty marine piece. It is a clear summer night. The stars are bright, and spangle the fine liquid dusk down to the sea-line. But in the far east there is the green faintness of the lunar dawn, and the black line of the rolling horizon stands out against it, as though wrought by the sweep of a brush steeped in India ink. A pinnace of those days, a little sailing craft of some hundred tons, let us call it, is buzzing through the dark waters, with her head east-north-east for Plymouth Town. She is a piratical craft, with the Jolly Roger for her bunting, and is commanded by Master Thomas Fleming, a hardy Scotsman. He is short of victuals and water, and his ship besides has been somewhat roughly handled by successive gales of wind, so he is homeward bound after a tedious and idle filibustering cruise. But it is for something more than the mere design of filling his casks and restocking his tierces that he is speeding for the English coast under every press of cloth he can spread abroad. For it is only just now that whilst standing near the tiller looking to windward, with the weatherly eye of a sailor ever on the watch for a change, he took notice of a blot of blackness making a deeper dye upon the shadow of the night, far down in the south, and away past it he descried such another blotch, and yet another and another still, and so on through a range of hard upon two leagues of seaboard, showing all of them like the shoulders of black clouds lifting slowly to the stars, with a compacted mass of vapour to follow. But Fleming was born in a land that breeds the finest race of sailors in the world, besides having served a long apprenticeship to the business of keeping a bright lookout for prizes. It was impossible he could be mistaken. Every instinct of the mariner in him gave him warning, indeed, it was in full cry at a breath. "'Twas the Spaniard coming by Our Lady. Those dusky loomings were ships, and nothing else. They were the swelling canvas of the mighty galleons in huge caracks of the dawn." So it was crack on all with the pirate, and buzz away with him to Plymouth Town to give the news as nimbly as ever the soft summer night wind could blow his little round-bowed craft along. The mere fancy of the fate of England hanging upon that small craft, swinging her quaint form over the long swells of the Atlantic, rolling northwards to the narrow seas, should make a man hold his breath even three hundred years afterwards for a moment, as he thinks how it might have been with this tight little island, but for the alertness of that piratical, patriotic old Scotsman, willing to heave overboard all sulky prejudice against England, all sullen resentment over the beheading of Queen Mary, at sight of yonder dusky challenge to his heart as a Britain. England lay sleeping restfully after months of bitter disquiet. Master Thomas Fleming knew that. His own suspicions had been lulled, though he had hung much about the Spanish seaboard. The mighty fleet had sailed from the Tagus, 
but the news of its having been dispersed by a tempest that had wrecked three of the Portuguese galleys, dismasted eight of the bigger ships, and forced the Duke of Medina Sidonia, with such as were visible of his armada clinging to his skirts into the Bay of Corona, there to refresh and to ship more soldiers, was already old. Fleming, picking up the gossip as he cruised here and there, knew that the British High Admiral, the Lord Charles Howard, had received Her Majesty's commands to send four of her tallest and strongest ships to Chatham for repairs and re-equipment, as it was the Queen's belief that the Spanish fleet had no present intention of putting to sea. The pirate was also aware that many of the British ships lying at Plymouth were in a partially dismantled condition, the crews ashore, sails unbent, rigging unrove and that the fate of the nation was sealed if the stems of the Don's mighty galleons struck our English home waters before the noble Howard could be apprised of the enemy's approach. This wonderful passage of our national story grows confused presently with the intermingling of contending vessels, disjointed murderous struggles, the flames of fireships, the rage of battles slowly trending like a pall of gunpowder smoke from abreast of the start to the white terraces of the forelands. But that incident of Fleming, that detail of his little pinnace seeming to yearn in her swelling canvas with the same wild longing to make haste that animated the spirit of the pirate, stands out bright and sharp in its isolation. One sees the figure of the man in slouched hat, short cloak, belted doublet, jack-boots, spiked beard, and moustachios curled upon his cheeks, standing at the rail of his humming craft, and sending a falcon glance under the sharp of his hand into the southern dusk, where the loom of a hundred dark shadows break the continuity of the sea-line there. It was at four o'clock in the afternoon on July the 19th, according to the old writers, that Master Thomas Fleming, being arrived at Plymouth Sound, rode to the Lord High Admiral, and told him that the Spaniard was close aboard, sailing large under towers of canvas, a vast, incredible multitude of him. It is three hundred years ago, but the variations of human nature are as the polaric changes of the compass, slow with a steadfast recurrence to the old bearings. And nothing is easier than to imagine today what the feeling then was when Fleming delivered his report. There is an old story of Sir Francis Drake leisurely completing his game of bowls after a glance of indifference seawards. It is a good tale for the Marines. There is no illustration in all naval history that so gloriously expressed the English seaman's genius of promptitude as the dispatch Howard and his men exhibited in making ready to prepare for sea and confront the enemy. A large number of the sailors and soldiers belonging to the royal ships were ashore, as Fleming had heard. Yet before darkness had settled down that same night, the admiral was lying ready with six ships, waiting for the morning to break for others to join him. They arrived in twos and threes, and assuredly not one moment too soon, for at midday the armada hove into view, whitening in a crescent seven miles of sea with its flowing canvas, and glorifying the blue of the sky beyond it with the radiance of fluttering pennons. The enemy's strength was well known. It had been circulated long before in printed copies, doubtless with the intention of paralysing the spirit of the English. The description had been dated May the 20th, and subsequent gales of wind had scarcely rendered its modification needful. The happy armada then, as it was styled, consisted of 130 ships, expressing an aggregate of close upon 58,000 tonnes. It was manned by over 19,000 soldiers, 8,450 marines, above 2,000 slaves, and armed with 2,630 pieces of cannon. 
the tenders to this fleet loaded to their ways with a prodigious quantity of arms and ammunition formed of themselves a considerable armada besides in addition to the soldiers and sailors there were upwards of a hundred and eighty monks of several orders together with a hundred and twenty-four volunteers who represented the noblest blood in old spain it is impossible out of mere figures to collect even a poor notion of dimensions of aspect of the hundred formidable elements which went to the composition of the vast unwieldy structures of this enormous fleet there were several fifty-gun ships don pedro de valdez's vessel was of one thousand five hundred and fifty tons burden carried three hundred and four fighting men besides one hundred and eighteen sailors there were pinnaces that rose to the burden of eight hundred and seventy six tons the st martin the galleon commanded by the captain-general was of one thousand tons there were huge galleasses besides armed each with fifty pieces of cannon and manned by an army of soldiers and sailors one obtained some idea of their bulk on reading that they contained within them chambers chapels turrets pulpits and other commodities of great houses they were propelled with oars by three hundred slaves and in common with most of the other vessels of portugal biscay andalusia castile and the contributory provinces they were furnished and beautified with trumpets streamers banners warlike ensigns and other such-like ornaments it was hardly guessed yet perhaps by the crowds who viewed that vast floating crescent of white cloths and shining banners from the devon and cornwall heights that but for the blundering of its pilots by which the lizard had been mistaken for rame's head plymouth sound would even on the yester eve have been crowded with those cathedral-like galleons whilst the shining armour and gaudy raiment of his most catholic majesty's troops would have gleamed on the rise of the inland moor or glittered betwixt the hedgerows of the fair summer country the spectator to her found heart must have needed the deepest and most enthusiastic faith in the courage of the english seaman when from some plymouth eminence he carried his eye from the slender squadron just outside the harbour to the immense flotilla whose southeasternmost wing showed in dim flashes of light against the blue of the horizon so wide apart were the horns of this unparalleled arc yet one may say with all memory strong in one of such men as benbow blake howe nelson that never did british-built structures hold so valiant and noble a company of english sailors as those who chased fought harassed and defeated the don during those nine subsequent days of thunderous conflict sir william monson who was eighteen years of age in fifteen eighty eight and who served it is said as a common sailor aboard the charles a pinnace that was engaged in the great fight tells us that when even the whole resources of the country had come to the help of her mariners there was not above a hundred and twenty sail of men of war to encounter that invincible armada and not above five of them all except the largest of the royal ships which were of two hundred tons burden it was our seamen he says who by their experience and courage were the cause of our victories not the ships though elsewhere in his admirable naval tracts this fine old admiral says that big as the spanish galleons were he would rather have fought them in a vessel of two hundred tons manned by a crew of a hundred englishmen than in the biggest of the galleons have engaged the same englishmen with a company under him of a thousand spanish soldiers and sailors one needs but glance at the flags flying from the british mastheads to comprehend the certainty of the issue the pious chroniclers of those times attribute a great deal to the weather 
but it is not too much to say that neither the glorious first of june nor trafalgar itself exhibits instances of fiercer fighting than does this three hundred year old nine days rage of battle charles howard of the ducal house of norfolk was the lord high admiral the scientific discipline of modern times renders the strategic manoeuvres of this noble gentleman somewhat primitive but no sailor who narrowly follows the movements of the english in this series of engagements but must recognise in charles howard as fine an expression of naval genius as remarkable a combination of every quality which enters into the composition of a great admiral as our maritime annals anywhere offer sir francis drake was next in command still bronzed by the suns of the pacific ocean whose mysterious solitudes he was the first englishman to penetrate his name alone was worth a score of galleons in its terror-striking influence over the spanish spirit fresh from his easy and cheerful burning of ten thousand tons of shipping at cadiz he might be one of the few commanders over whom floated the english colours who could contemplate the result of the approaching strife without the least stir of uneasiness or misgiving there was martin frobisher again the hardiest of yorkshiremen the most intrepid of seamen with a body toughened to the inflexibility of his spirit by the arctic blasts that had obstructed his exploration for the north-west passage there was the lion-hearted edward fenton who had been captain of the gabriel in frobisher's expedition and who had studied the secrets of his profession not under the comfortable shining of spanish suns but amidst the wild ice plains of the north and the high surge and desperate gales of the norwegian heights there was john hawkins he who had fired upon the spanish admiral who was to bring anne of austria from flanders for endeavouring to sneak out of catwater without saluting the symbol of britannia's domination of the deep the hero of the amazing if disastrous expedition of the jesus of lubeck and after drake the most famous seaman of his age there were many other renowned and capable men but the list is too long to exhaust it is pleasant to follow sir william monson in his brief reference to this famous armada battle the mere feeling that he bore a part in the tremendous conflict young as he was causes one to read his obscure page as though he were some ancient survivor of the heroic company talking to us out of his armchair about what he saw and did you get the same feeling in reading emmanuel van meteren's relation of the fight in the black letter copy of Hacklite printed in 1598, ten years afterwards, as fresh almost as a newspaper version of a battle two days old in these times, so slow were people's movements then, as compared with our activity. The Ark Royal carried the Admiral's flag, Drake commanded the Revenge, Hawkins the Victory, Lord Thomas Howard the Lion, Lord Sheffield the Bear, Sir Robert Southwell the Elizabeth Jones, Frobisher the Triumph, the Hope, the Bonaventure, the Dreadnought, the Nonpareil, the Swiftsure, the Rainbow, the Vanguard, the Mary Rose were the names of others. There were besides the Nori, the Spy, the Moon, the Charles, the Bull, the Scout, the Tiger, the Swallow, with a few more of the smaller fry. Historic names go to the commanding even of these lesser craft, such as Lord Henry Seymour, Fenner, Cross, Richard Hawkins, the two Wentworths, Fenton, Clifford, and others. Later on, the English fleet was reinforced by privately equipped ships. In which number, says the Black Letter account, there were many great and honourable personages, as namely the Earls of Oxford, of Northumberland, of Cumberland, etc., with many knights and gentlemen. 
to wit sir thomas cecil sir robert cecil sir walter raleigh sir william hatton and some scores besides all england indeed flocked seawards upon the south coast were cantoned twenty thousand men an army of twenty-two thousand foot and a thousand horse was encamped near tilbury and for the guarding of the queen's person was a third army of thirty-two thousand foot and four thousand horse all picked men in this age of colossal ordnance it is perhaps excusable to recur somewhat slightingly to the primitive death-smiting engines of three hundred years ago but do not let us suppose for a moment that the genius of murder was not horribly consummate in its way even in those days conflicts meant a species of butchery which the world is happy in regarding as one of the lost arts the largest gun a ship then carried was called a demi-cannon but then this weapon weighed four hundred pounds its bore was six and three-quarter inches it threw a shot weighing thirty pounds could send its missile seventeen hundred paces and was loaded with eighteen pounds of powder next was the cannon petro that carried a twenty-four pound shot the culverin a seventeen pound shot the basilisk a fifteen pound shot and so on down to the little serpentine and rabinet which threw respectively shots weighing three-quarters of a pound and half a pound. Here, then, were broadside armaments capable almost of equalling the thunders of Trafalgar, and of rivalling the execution done by the gunners of Nelson. But they fought in those days with other destructive engines as well. They discharged flaming arrows of wildfire. They boarded with pikes blazing with the same inextinguishable stuff. From the ship's sides, or from her enormous tops, they flung brass bowls and earthen pots filled with powder and bullets stuck in pitch which made an incredible slaughter when hurled amongst the surging crowd of combatants they suspended barrels of powder at their yard-arms ready to let fall upon the enemy's deck as the ship rubbed sides together where they burst as though the powder-room had blown up scattering death right and left and confounding and terrifying the seamen with the deafening blasts of the explosion they also flung contrivances filled with a chemical composition that, as it burnt, threw out thick coils of black smoke of a stench so nauseating, of a character so poisonous, that in order to breathe men were obliged to fly from their quarters. For as wild a picture of marine conflict as the imagination could desire, it might not be necessary to look outside that period. The great galleons of the Spaniard bristled with ordnance. They floated like vast castles upon the sea and as we know from the annals of this armada from the voyage of anson from the experiences of english freebooters they were almost inaccessible by boarders their tops were crowded by men who maintained an incessant fire with their matchlocks upon the enemy's decks others discharged flaming arrows at the sails and hull of the opposing craft an army of soldiers secreted in close quarters showed their heads only after a broadside to flash back their response to the challenge to the quarter-deck something of the colour of the medieval field of battle was communicated by the figures of the generals the admirals the commanders and officers in suits of armour there was stateliness indeed in the castellated fabrics with their great poop lanthorns stern windows the gilded devices on the counter sparkling to the sunlight in the milk-white softness of the huge spread of canvas enriched by streamers whose forked ends in calm fluttered the whole length of the masthead to the deck in the gleam of accoutrements the radiant hues of romantic apparel the rich and lustrous symbolism of the figurehead 
in the garnishing of the broad decks by the colours of the varied attire of the slave, the soldier, the mariner, the monk, and the commander. But the shipboard discipline of the Spaniard was but an extension of the tactics of the battlefield. The prejudices of the tented plain were always strong for him. He went to sea as a soldier in a castle, and the English could not but ridicule a marine theory that reduced the jacks of the ship to a condition of subordinacy that rendered them even of less worth in the eyes of the commanders than the slaves who tugged at the long sweeps of the galleys. Our sailors laughed, too, at qualities of superstition, which might have crippled the resolution of a forecastle of landsmen even. The Spaniard's watchwords were the saints. He was allowed but six meals of flesh in a year, the slaves who helped him to fight were fed on oil, on rice, and on beans. These surely were not the sort of folks to conquer England, that the Duke of Parma might take the place of noble Queen Bess. On the arrival of Fleming, as we have seen, with news of the mighty Spanish armament, close in soundings, and heading direct for the English coast, the Lord High Admiral had, with incredible activity, himself working with his own hands far into the night, got ready six ships, which by noon next day had been reinforced to the number of thirty. They lay quiet, waiting for the Spaniard to pass away to leeward. It blew a pleasant breeze of wind from a little to the southward of west, and the armada swept softly, cloud-like, over the pale blue of the channel waters, as though it were the magnified reflection in that rippling mirror of the new moon hanging directly overhead. The galleons, carracks, and pollockers, which formed the northern horn of the seven-mile semicircle, had doubtless a good view of the thirty English craft, many of them very little ships, with their topsails aback, or their anchors maybe down, resting quietly within the yawn of the points which form Plymouth Sound. And their hardy sailors, soldiers, and slaves might well flatter themselves with the assurance that if yonder toys represented the naval strength of England, the realm might already be regarded as vanquished and re-Catholicized. They were not to know, however, that amongst the most ardent of the men who were prepared dearly to sell their lives for the old country, were those same Roman Catholics on whose sympathy and support the Spanish monarch and the Duke of Parma largely counted. It is true that the account in purchase says, The principal requisites, lest they should stir up any tumult in the time of the Spanish invasion, were sent to remain at certain convenient places, as namely in the Isle of Ely and at Wisbeach. But we also have it on high contemporary authority, that even the Papists whom the Spaniards expected to have found in arms were glad to wipe away the aspersions which had been thrown upon them by serving as common soldiers. The story of the first assault is vague. Howard waited until the Armada had travelled a little space up channel, and then his thirty ships braced up, having now the weather gauge of the enemy, and started for him. The encounter was brisk, many broadsides were exchanged but there does not appear to have been anything decisive in this action. Next day, July the 21st, proved more mischievous for the Don. The English fleet was still further strengthened by arrival of ships, and approached within musket-shot of the enemy, Lord Charles Howard singling out and hotly engaging the Spanish Vice-Admiral. It needed but a very little manoeuvring to show that, whilst the advantage of strength of fabric and weight of broadside metal was altogether with the Spaniards, Seamanship and nimbleness of heels were the happy possessions of the English. So high did the Spanish galleons float out of water that their people found it impossible to
to depress their guns so as to bring them to bear upon the decks and hulls of the English ships. Their shots flew high, sweeping betwixt the masts above the topsail yards. Indeed, it was more like a cutting-out job than an action fought broadside to broadside. One's triumph in the conflict is mingled with a sentiment of pity. They had some stout sea captains in that armada, but think of the confrontment of Castilian marine prowess with such iron hearts as Drake, as Frobisher, as Hawkins, as Fenton, men whose veins ran with salt water, the most exquisite seamen of their time, of an intrepidity that is almost phenomenal, with the animation of real scorn for the Spaniard as an ocean foeman tingling in every fibre of their tough and oak-like natures. Think, too, of the comparative helplessness of a vast body of soldiers crowded betwixt the bulwarks of the mountainous timber castles, perhaps twice as long as they were broad, with a mere handful of seamen to work the ship, men whose services were so little valued that, as Monson tells us, they would be kept aloft furling and making sail, exposed to the hot sharp shooting of the foe until, as a matter of fact, ere the engagement had scarcely made fair progress, two-thirds of the seamen lay dead on the deck or were floating mangled corpses alongside. There was rage, there was burning patriotism, there was the old unbending resolution to conquer amongst the English. But there must have been something of disdain, too. The Leviathan tubs, scarce answering their helm, halyards shot through, and hardly a seaman surviving to tell the soldiers what to do the priests confessing the dying and exhorting the living, the black visages of the slaves whose hearts were assuredly not with their masters, the ducking of heads past the bulwark line to every broadside in the true old Spanish fashion. No, those jacks of the Elizabethan day could not, amidst the stress and heat and uproar of the battle, view such an enemy as the Don wallowing in his cliff-high castle, without contempt of him as a sailor falling cool upon their wrath, though scorn might give a new nerve to the swing of the flaming pike, and a deadlier precision to the aim of the cannon Petro. The Spaniards speedily saw how it was. The nimbleness of the English craft was like the waltz of the running surge around their ponderous wagons. There was nothing for it but to shorten sail and come together in a body and defy the English with that half-moon front, which might have been a very excellent tactic had it proved so. One of their great galleasses was so furiously hammered that the signal flew for as many of the fleet as could approach to gather round and save her, with the result that Don Pedro de Valdez's enormous galleon fell foul of another ship, carried away her foremast, and dropped to leeward out of the battle. Howard, spying this ship, concluded that she was abandoned, though in reality she was full of men, all in hiding, no doubt, and sailed past her with the design of keeping the rest of the Spanish fleet in view all night. But next day, being the 22nd, Sir Francis Drake fell in with her. He sent his pinnace, and discovered that the great Pedro de Valdez himself was on board, along with a company of 450 people, many of them noblemen. Drake was an old hand with the Don, and ordered Valdez to yield. The Spaniard was for making terms, upon which Drake informed him that he had no leisure now for ceremonies of any kind, that if he yielded himself he would receive friendly treatment, but that if he had resolved to die in fight he should prove Drake to be no dastard. The mere utterance of Drake's name acted magically. Indeed, Valdez and his companions had not known until now who was the Englishman that had hailed them. The memory of Cadiz was fresh. Drake's West Indian reputation, too, was equally green. Without an instant's hesitation, Valdez struck, 
and went on board Drake's ship with his retinue of fifty noblemen and gentlemen. How Valdez kissed Drake's hand, how he protested his good fortune in having fallen into the power of one who was as famous for his gentleness to the vanquished as for his courage and expertness in battle, how Sir Francis embraced him, handsomely entertained him at his own table, and comfortably lodged him in his private cabin, is known to all. On that same day a Spanish ship, commanded by the vice-admiral of the whole fleet, was burnt down to her powder-room without exploding, though her people were miserably scorched. Needless to say, she was promptly taken in tow by the English. It is strange to notice how little this mighty conflict scatters. One might imagine that such a mass of shipping as is here assembled would have covered nearly the whole range of the English Channel, with contending craft in twos and threes. But all the while the Spaniards seemed to keep together in a lump, with the English ordnance flashing through their closed ranks, and brilliantly handled vessels, big and little, flying English colours, snapping at their heels like wolves, and tearing first one and then another down. The bitterest, the most furious conflict of all was on the 23rd, where the Lord Howard found himself in the thick of the enemy, almost abandoned, though there was no intermission in the roar of his broadsides. Presently falling within hail of Captain Fenner, who was in command of the Swiftshore, he cried out, O oh George, what doest thou? Wilt thou now frustrate my hope and opinion conceived of thee? Wilt thou forsake me now? On which, says the old account, Fenner approached forthwith, encountered the enemy, and did the part of a most valiant captain. In this action a large Venetian ship and several small vessels were captured by the English. Meanwhile, almost every hour of the day was bringing fresh vessels to the rescue from English ports. By the time the fleets had arrived abreast of Dover, the English ships amounted, some say, to one hundred and thirty, though so small was the bulk of them that, with the exception of three and twenty belonging to the Queen, not one but seemed ridiculously disproportioned for the conflict she had been fitted out to undertake. There must have been much ungodly scoffing amongst the English when, the great running battle being over, and all sorts of news filtering into this country drop by drop, it came to be known that the Duke of Parma, not questioning but that he should be crowned King of England by Cardinal Allen, had travelled several leagues that he might make some preliminary bows, according to Hacklite, and vows, according to Purchase, unto St. Mary of Hal in Hainault, whom he went to visit for his blind devotion's sake, and how, this duty being discharged, he had journeyed to Dunkirk simply to learn, not only out of the mouths of cannon roaring seaward, but from the crowds in the streets of the town, that the Spaniards were being slowly, but surely, knocked to pieces. We were fighting the Dutch, very hotly indeed, in these same waters not long afterwards, but they were serving us astonishingly well now. Lord Henry Seymour, cruising on the coast of Flanders, was nobly supported by Count Nassau. The business of checkmating the Duke of Parma was entrusted to the sturdy, broad-beamed Hans Butterboxes, as Charles II loved to call the Dutch, and with the characteristic thoroughness of that plodding and much-to-be-admired people was that obligation fulfilled. In truth, the Duke's people were so honestly terrified by the sight of the Holland and Zealand ships that day and night the business of desertion proceeded as regularly as the ebb of the tide. The spectacle of the flat-bottomed boats was too much for the disheartened creatures. How on earth were they to break through those floating batteries, lying yonder under the shadow of the horizontal tricolour, in fabrics as flat as spoons, and as ungovernable as a barge adrift on a running river? So they wisely took to their heels, and we hear no more of them. Meanwhile, the English continued to pound the Spaniard with their great ordnance and flaming missiles. The dons retorted handsomely, 
but their shots flew so high that our jacks might have imagined they were bombarding the heavens. It was a dead calm on the 24th. The towering vessels lay lifeless, slewing slowly to every compass point with the fingering of the tide, and the reflection of their shining canvas lay under each bristling hull in a waving sheet of silver. But the enemy had four great galleuses, with an army of slaves for the multitudinous oars of each of them, and these craft, heavily armed and crowded with fighting men, made for the Queen's ships, but without the least result saving that they, on their part, were most cruelly mauled by the chain-shot our demi-cannon hurled at them. Day after day was this great fight waged, slowly rolling up-channel, and there was no point of British coast from Bolthead to Dungeness that did not echo the thunder of the contending fleets. To follow the conflict in its close details would demand such space as cannot be afforded here. There was a terrible fight on the 25th, the ships being abreast of the Isle of Wight, when the Lion, Captain Lord Thomas Howard, the Elizabeth Jonas, Captain Sir Robert Southwell, the Bear, Captain Lord Sheffield, the Victory, Captain Barker, and the Galleon Leicester, Captain George Fenner, sheared desperately into the very heart of the Spanish fleet, engaging the enormous carracks within a hundred yards, firing so rapidly that their broadsides were like volcanic upheavals, flame after flame, with scarce an intermission, until the tormented Spaniards tailed on to their topsail halyards to compact their timber castles into an impenetrable front. It was on this occasion that Master John Hawkins and honest Captain Frobisher were, with others, rewarded by the Lord High Admiral with the Order of Knighthood. That same day the false ironical rumour spread like wildfire from sea to land that the Spaniards had conquered England. On the 27th, the Spaniards at sunset had hauled into Calais roads and let go their anchors, intending presently to push on for Dunkirk, where, for they were still buoyed up by vain hopes, they believed the forces of the Duke of Parma would join them. It was now that Lord Henry Seymour united his little fleet with that of the Lord High Admiral, and it was on this day that the noble Howard was directed by letters from Her Majesty the Queen to drive the Spanish fleet from Calais. The Sovereign knew her sailors, and was fearless in the instructions she gave them. Thereupon, next day being Sunday, that is to say at two o'clock on Sunday morning, the night being dark and an inshore wind blowing dead upon the Spanish fleet along with a strong wash of tide, the Lord Admiral of England let slip some fire-ships in charge of two bold captains, young and prows, they drove accurately into the thick of the don, blazing wildly, vomiting shot the while from heavy cannon which had been loaded to the muzzles. It is the wildest of all the scenes of this mighty show, sky and sea lighted up for leagues by the high and writhing flames of the fireships, with the yellow-tinctured phantasms of near and distant Spanish galleons hurriedly and confusedly getting under way, cutting their hemp cables, toiling at brace and halyard, with the wild and agitated shouts and cries of the armies of soldiers, mariners, slaves, and priests, rolling shorewards upon the damp night wind, with a sound as of sullen moaning of breakers. But the end was not yet, though near at hand. A great galleas stranded, and the English made for her, but were driven from their prey by the heavy ordnance of the Calais batteries. There was another desperate fight on the twenty-ninth off Gravelines, and it is impossible to follow even three hundred years later the superb seamanship of the English on this occasion without something of those emotions of triumph and pride which must have swelled the hearts of the contemporaries of Drake and Frobisher. Three great Spanish ships were sunk, two big Portuguese galleons abandoned, and vast mischief in other ways done to the Don. 
and now still on this same twenty-ninth we witness the spaniards running with the english in full pursuit the cloths they spread were warrant enough that their stomach was gone and that they had had enough lord henry seymour with his squadron clung to the coast of flanders to hold the duke of parma idle whilst lord charles howard pursued the spaniards into the north sea to as high as fifty-seven degrees of latitude he then quietly shifted his helm for home making little doubt that the norwegian and hebridean surge with the weather of cape wrath and the bewildering navigation of the islands round about would effectually complete the work he and his hearts of oak had begun no schoolboy but knows what follows how there came on to blow a succession of heavy gales which drove upwards of thirty ships ashore on the irish coast with the loss of many thousands of men how of all that invincible armada twenty-five vessels only with the duke of medina sidonia aboard one of them yet alive to relate the incredible tale of disaster succeeded in making the bay of biscay how many large ships were lost upon the western isles and upon the coast of argalsia the story is old indeed but the occurrence of its anniversary renders even an insufficient reference to it a justifiable expression of patriotic pride it is a marine pageant fitly nobly gloriously closed by that quaint old spectacle of queenly national and civic thanksgiving to the sight of which we are admitted by the grace and diligence of the old chroniclers likewise the queen's majesty herself imitating the ancient romans rode into london in triumph in regard of her own and her subjects glorious deliverance for being attended upon very solemnly by all the principal estates and officers of her realm she was carried through her said city of london in a triumphant chariot and in robes of triumph and from her palace into the cathedral church of st paul out of which the ensigns and colours of the vanquished spaniards hung displayed and all the citizens of london in their liveries stood on either side of the streets by their several companies with their ensigns and banners and the streets were hanged on both sides with blue cloth which together with the foresaid banners yielded a very stately and gallant prospect her majesty being entered into the church together with her clergy and nobles gave thanks unto god and caused a public sermon to be preached before her at paul's cross wherein none other argument was handled but that praise honour and glory might be rendered unto god and that god's name might be extolled by thanksgiving and with her own princely voice she most christianly exhorted the people to do the same whereupon the people with a loud acclamation wished her a most long and happy life to the confusion of her foes end of section twenty three recording by patrick wallace london End of The Mystery of the Ocean Star by W. Clark Russell